Welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. This week's guest is Donald Spivey, professor of history at the University of Miami. We are discussing his book, If You Were Only White, The Life of Leroy Satchel Page, published by the University of Missouri Press in 2012. Here's a question for all of you who are baseball fans, a question that I've asked past guests on the podcast. Name the three most important figures in baseball history. I'd say that most people will come up with the same names for the first two spots on the list, Jackie Robinson and Babe Ruth. But what about the third name? There's where the real debate would start. Don Spivey would make the case that this should be Satchel Page. First of all, according to Don, Page was the greatest pitcher in the history of the game, period. Both the Negro League players who faced him regularly and the white major leaguers who played against him in winter exhibition games agreed that there was no other pitcher with the speed and control of Satchel Page. Owing to this extraordinary talent, Page was also extraordinarily popular. And here, according to Don, is the real importance of Satchel Page. Even though he played in the Negro Leagues and on barnstorming tours throughout much of his career, Page was the biggest draw in baseball in the 1930s and 40s. Here was the real beginning of baseball's integration. Winter exhibition games played in western states, between white major league all-stars and black players led by Satchel Page, and watched by mixed crowds of tens of thousands of people. Satchel Page is typically romanticized as the old man of baseball, offering nuggets of homespun wisdom. But Don's biography shows us that Satchel Page was much more like the self-serving, mercenary athletes of today than we'd care to admit. Page was supremely talented and entertaining, but he also wasn't always admirable. Don's book offers a full portrait of the player and the man set against the backdrop of race, sports, and society in America of the 1920s through the 1950s. Here is our interview. My guest this week on New Books and Sports is Don Spivey. Don, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Bruce. Appreciate it. So I'll say uh, in introduction that uh, Don is professor of history at the University of Miami. He's been on the faculty there for over two decades. And he's published a number of books and articles going back some uh, or more than 25 years on African-American history. Uh, and one subject, on that you have written about in the past before the, the book on Satchel Page is sports history. And so I'll ask you how, how your interest in sports connects with your other, other research interests. Well, but my, uh, first of all, primary love is history. I was a history undergraduate major, master's student major in history, and doctoral student major uh, in history. But when I attended college, by the way, I attended on an athletic scholarship. I was a football player at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. This was in the 1960s. Uh, and uh, when I decided to quit the team, even though I was a starting tailback, uh, etc., I had a commitment to try and understand the dilemma that black athletes faced in big-time intercollegiate sports programs. And I teamed up with a former teammate who was still on the team at that time, Tom Jones, and we ended up doing a project titled Intercollegiate Athletic Servitude, a case study of the black Illini student-athletes that evolved into uh, my and his first major publication back in 1975 in Social Science Quarterly. Uh, and it brought together quantitative data, etc. We wanted to look at graduation rates, patterns, what were the majors the students engaged in, and the history and uh, in context. So I've always had a running interest, personal and, and intellectual, intellectually, uh, in uh, the whole area of, of sport. I mean, sport was not something you'd go on and do a PhD dissertation in back in that 
that era. So that was not uh, a possibility. But it's always been something that uh, I would uh, research in, publish articles in, uh, books on, uh, etc., coming forward to uh, finally the Satchel Page book. And I'll ask you then, so what led you, your, your early research was more, more sociological. What led you to uh, the history, history of the Negro Leagues and, and Satchel Page? Well, actually, it was always historical. I mean, we, we always tried to reach a broad uh, audience, uh, to be sure. The, the Satchel Page thing uh, this is very interesting. I, I mean, first of all, I was contacted by John Hope Franklin, mm-hmm. the great historian. Who, who wondered if I wanted to do something on Satchel Page because he knew that the University of Missouri obviously had consulted with him, and he had su- suggested me. Uh, I was doing all kinds of things on other aspects of, uh, of sport and had interest, obviously, in the Negro Leagues. I taught a course on the history of blacks uh, in sports, and thus we began, that is to say, myself and the University of Missouri Press began a correspondence way back uh, for this Satchel Page uh, uh, book. Uh, and so it's really in the 1990s that I started focusing on that because so many other projects were, were going on. And this, this book uh, took me 12 years uh, of dedicated research and writing uh, to complete because just like any other great project, and this was a great project, it was also a labor of love. Where, you know, we knew of Satchel Page, obviously, and wanted to get it right. I was, like many others, tired of the uh, the uh, the loose treatments of Page, the recycled stories. And I said, you know, we need to get a professional historian to do this, as John Franklin uh, had uh, suggested. So it became, for me, a tremendous learning uh, experience over those 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 twelve years. I'll give you one example. As Page moved around. Uh, not only his birth in Mobile, Alabama, etc., when he would later play for the Chattanooga, uh, uh, Tennessee team, or with the Birmingham Black Barons, or the Pittsburgh Crawfords, or he's at the East-West game in Chicago, and he's he's out in the the, uh, the Winter League in California, and then later in the Caribbean, and so forth and so on. It meant for me that in all those locales and places. Uh, just like when he would have these great years with the Kansas City Monarchs. It meant I had to learn the history of that region, mm-hmm. <laughs> of that community. As I joked with Bob Page, his son, when I finally finished the book, because uh, we talk all the time, started interviewing them and have interviewed them for for many years. I told him by the time I finished the book, I almost hated his father. <laughs> because... Because he would keep, he would go to these places, and for me to write it correctly meant that I had to become very knowledgeable about these places. Heck, I grew up in Chicago and thought I knew a lot about the history of Chicago, and I had to dig even deeper, learn even more to put Page, as we as historians love to do, in historical context. So by the time I finished with Satchel Page, I'd been around the world. Right, and so I was worn out. But as I joke with Bob, I say I thank his father for completing my education. <laughs> you cover you cover the whole Western Hemisphere because he played from from North Dakota to Venezuela. There you go, there you go. Right, so it means you just can't write about some trip or some experiences there as a historian. You've got to you got to you got to read the history of these nations. You got to do research uh, in it. You got to understand what's going on to place them in the, the the proper context. So that was that was almost hilarious. And it, and and by the time I got ready to actual actually write after finishing all the research and saying I'm ready now to start writing, by that time now a bunch of new books uh, had come out on aspects of of of, of uh, the places Page played in and so forth and so on. And I remember. Uh, as that summer approached, I had a book, a, a reading list of 130 books that that had to be completed before I could really start putting pen to paper in a in a serious, uh, serious way. So I thank 
you know, Satchel Paige for the education, for the for the opportunity, and for forcing me to become hopefully an even better historian. Oh, that's that's <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Um, well, I'll ask you, and and this is one of the the things that's been praised about your book is is you do. Uh, uncover new source material about Satchel Page. So, so this is a story that had been known. Uh, you do bring to it the the rigor and uh, uh, the research of an academic historian. What what surprised you? So you knew the story well. What surprised you uh, about the life of Satchel Page in the course well, of your research? Everything surprised me about him. Let me see. Uh, early on, I think the, one of the most uh, interesting chapters, and it's not a super long chapter, but extremely, extremely important, uh, is his years at the Mount Meigs Reform School, uh, the so-called, uh, as it was called formally, uh, officially, uh, the Alabama Reform School for Juvenile Negro Lawbreakers. Uh, and, you know, People knew about that, that he'd gone to reform school, and they'll make some mention of it and, and, and move on. But that became, um, that one chapter took me two and a half years, even though it's a small chapter, to actually research it, to understand the history of Mount Meg, to understand who led it, what was going on at the school. And it was just a tremendous eye-opener for me. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the heart and soul behind the institution was Cornelia Bowen, a black woman who had come to the conclusion as she's developing this school uh, that, that uh, they needed to have a reform school to help save young black males, many of whom there in the state of Alabama as a, early as age 10 uh, have, were being sentenced to, uh, to prison, to terms in adult prisons. And, and so this was one of their efforts to, in fact, save black men. But even the story of Cornelia Bowen, I found out she was one of she was in the first graduating class at Tuskegee Institute in Tuskegee, Alabama. Booker T. Washington was actually her teacher. But her brilliance too is her ability to see the role of sport. She developed a relationship with the Carlisle Indian Institute in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Most people don't realize, of course, that the Carlisle Indian Institute, uh, where you get the great Jim Thorpe and Pop Warner football and baseball and all of that, Carlisle had a close relationship with the black industrial schools, particularly Hampton and Tuskegee, et cetera. In fact, it was modeled on the same model as those schools for blacks, only now it was supposed to be for native uh, Americans. They had a strong relationship there. And what she borrowed from them, the ideas of using sport for reform, uh, as Carlisle was doing and doing very successfully, obviously, with the noted Jim Thorpe uh, and others. At her school, they would focus on baseball. Uh, and it was there that Paige learned to pitch. Uh, it was there that he later said he really learned to be a man. Uh, Etc. And what's interesting, Paige never mentions her by name, nor does he mention by name Mrs. Meany, uh, who was his uh, uh, teacher in, in grammar school, who we call Mrs. Meany because she would always report his absences to his mother, which meant that he would get a whipping for, for missing school. But Mrs. Meany was a part of the Alabama a federation of colored women and knew very well Cornelia Bowen. They were good friends. And so when she helps to recommend him to be sent finally, as either that he's going to prison, be sent to uh, the, the Mount Meigs Institute, uh, it was to save him. So the person, as I told Bob Page, his son, I said, uh, when I finished this and we were talking about, he said, if my father were alive, what thing out of all of this would you like to inform him about? I said the first thing came to mind. I said I'd like to inform him that Mrs. Meany, uh, who was in fact Alicia uh, Young, was actually his best friend, mm -hmm. his guardian angel, and that the, the head of the Mount Megs, who he never mentioned, Cornelia Bowen, was a brilliant woman uh, who was doing her best to save him and countless other of black men. So that right in there, I mean, that's an education uh, for me because this becomes an important, uh, although not very well-known, uh, institute uh, in terms of, of uh, this whole notion of industrial schooling versus liberal arts, etc. But also 
it's at the forefront of using sport for reform. So I found that just just fascinating. Uh, I didn't know any of this going in uh, to to research Satchel Page. Uh, so I thank him again for that education. And so you talk about that he uh, uh, he begins playing baseball in reform school. And uh, so was his talent apparent right right from the start, or was this uh, was he a late bloomer? From the start, I mean the, the stories about him uh, as a child uh, uh, hunting with rocks was absolutely true. Knocking sparrows out the air with rocks was absolutely true. He was such a poor kid. Throwing rocks was one of the things uh, as a game and a sport uh, he could do. He didn't have any money to do uh, anything else, uh, etc. And he just loved to throw uh, and hit things. And he helped uh, bring in food for the house. Uh, you know, they had a family of 12. Uh, and his mother was a washerwoman and domestic, and his father worked uh, odd jobs as a common laborer on the docks there in uh uh, in Mobile, uh, and cut grass and these these other things. And so all the kids, when they were old enough, they, they did some kind of job, page from, you know, hustling, picking up discarded bottles and you know, uh, and that sort of thing. But also his ability with rocks to bring home ducks and, 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 and birds and rabbits and uh, to help, as, they, as he would say, fill the, uh, fill the pot. So... Uh, but what also sends him to reform school was the rock fight uh, that, that he and, and his friends would get in uh, against the uh, students at the, the nearby white school. Uh, and that's the real reason he sent up to, to, uh, to reform school. But uh, I mentioned all the rocks is because, uh, and he had started to play some baseball uh, in this, this earlier period. And the, the ability to throw rocks was transferable to the ability to throw uh, a baseball, particularly with his incredible accuracy. So, yes, it is very much uh, demonstrated uh, there mm-hmm. uh, at Mount Meigs early on. Nobody could hit him. Hmm. Uh, key, clue. It was not debatable. Unless he slowed the pitch down to let you hit him, and <laughs> there was no chance of that. So we should ask, in, in talking about his background, how does uh, – so. So he's named Leroy Page. How does he get to become known as Satchel? Uh, that's, uh, in fact, while he one of his many jobs uh, is working at the L&N uh, track station, the, the Louisville and Nashville um, uh, Railroad Depot, uh, carrying uh, satchels, carrying bags. They would, uh, you know, meet people coming to the station and and beg to carry their bags and, you know, earn a nickel or a few pennies, sometimes even a dime. Uh, or when they're leaving the train station, run up to them and uh, and, and urge to carry their bags. And he came up with a device with a pole uh, with straps to it where he could carry four or five, six bags at once, uh, uh, et cetera. And his, his fellow uh, young black boys there hustling, um, you know, they, they all joked about it. And, uh, in fact, Wilbur Hines started calling him Satchel Tree. <laughs> and in short order, uh, they dropped the tree and just called him satchel and that stuck with him for the rest of his life so picking up on this uh this talent he showed even from from throwing rocks in the neighborhood or throwing rocks at at animals to uh baseball at reform school uh you write about how when he begins to play semi-pro and professional baseball he he plays upon the stereotype that that whites have of the gifted but lazy black athlete. Can you, can you talk about how that shapes his persona on the field? Well, you know, this is uh, Page plays into that uh, himself. Uh, I mean, he will always say that, you know, I didn't practice much, I hated running, and so forth. And when you go back and you do the serious research, you see that he ran with the best of them. He practiced harder than most. He was first on the field, last to leave, etc. In those early years, as he's trying to to develop his skills. Also, there you saw it at that Mount Meigs, uh, and and the person who who taught him really uh, a baseball and how to pitch, who was Moses Davis, by the way, uh, and he was a, a minister in the area. He's also a member of the board of trustees uh, of the school, and they taught him. Uh, uh, to pitch, but Page also understood 
uh, as he left Mount Meigs uh, and went out there and started trying making a living uh, pitching, that that you got to entertain the audience. Uh, black athletes have always known this, and there was never any doubt that that uh, you know people come to a game yes to see athletic ability, but it's also entertainment. Uh, and that was always a difference, by the way, between uh, black ball. Uh, in the major leagues, uh, black ball understood. And in fact, it was a game that was played faster, more daring. I mean, why throw a person out at first base with an overhand throw if you can throw the ball between your legs and get it there? You know, I mean, the crowd loves <laughs> uh, loves that. Why just strike a person out? Why not walk around the mound and tell people what you're fixing to throw next? to strike the person out. <laughs> I mean, that's dangerous business, but if you're paid, you can do it. And they can't hit the ball. As, as, uh, as Double Duty Radcliffe told me, he said, uh, they knew what was coming. He said, but you can't hit what you can't see. I mean, the ball is going that fast. There's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> so he knew it. He, were, he was playing to these things, just like about his age. Paige would uh, for, carry this on for the rest of his life uh, about uh, how old he was, and the media just loved it. Page knew full well when he was born, and in what year. But uh, the media loved that. The old man, you know, what's his age? He doesn't know what his age is, and uh, and that kept him in the media. He's a very savvy individual uh, in playing to what I would argue becomes modern day sport. Modern day sport is not just about athletic performance; it's also about entertainment. So you talked about the some of the differences between black baseball and white baseball, uh, notably the the showmanship and and just the pace of the game in black baseball. I want to ask you about uh, the structure of black baseball in the South because when when Page starts playing professional baseball, he's hopping from team to team to team to team. So can you tell us about how these teams were organized and and why was it that a, that a player like Page would would move around really from season to season? Yeah, that, it, that was one of the common aspects of uh, the, the Negro Leagues, as they were, were called. And, you know, the, the, leagues, the, the National League is formed in 1920 there in Kansas City, uh, Missouri, uh, et cetera. And it was basically six teams in the National League and six teams in the American League. But the number of Negro League teams will, will expand and contract, expand and contract. At its height, you had maybe 66 uh, teams uh, in, in total, but for most years you're, you're talking about uh, you know 12, 15, 18 teams, uh, that sort of thing. But the idea of jumping was was very very common. Um, that that if you're a good player, uh, if you're a Josh Gibson, the greatest you know hitter in the history of the Negro Leagues, as some people call him, the the uh, the uh, Black Babe Ruth, and then as Black said, no, you got it wrong. Ruth is the white Josh Gibson. Uh, Josh Gibson was a tremendous talent, and there would be teams that would vie for his name recognition and his ability with a bat. And so they would offer you a couple hundred bucks, come play a game with them, and so forth and so on. So it was very common for players to, to jump, not only for a game, but sometimes they might jump you know, for a season. Uh, because, as, as uh, people would like to say, the, the Negro League contract wasn't worth the paper it was written on. Uh, and that was a common problem there. And Page took tremendous advantage of this notion of jumping uh, as his reputation grew. I mean, everybody knows that a, a baseball game starts and begins with what? The pitcher. <laughs> if, if you've got a great pitcher, you've already... <laughs> made it, uh, you've increased your chances a million times that you can win uh, uh, this game. I think Buck O'Neill put it best. He said uh, the teams he was on with, with Satchel Page, of course, including the, the Kansas City Monarchs, he said, we were really a very good team. He said, but with Page pitching, we were a great team. And so that was the, the difference. So, yes, he jumped all the time. He was a fast baller for hire. Uh, you know, and that was also one of the uh, one of the problems, uh, for, certainly for the leagues. Uh, that uh, and and one that Rube Foster, the brainchild behind the idea of the uh, stabilizing Negro League baseball, and his work with the uh, uh, the Chicago American Giants. I mean, he wanted to stop this 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 jumping. He wanted some balance uh, 
uh, uh, there and greater stability uh, there. It would come to some degree, but uh, not fully, uh, you know, because uh, in the case of a satchel page, uh, and later even Gus Greenlee, the owner of Crawford's, would, would agree, as would later the, the owner of the, of, a, of the Kansas City Monarch, J.L. Wilkinson, where Page would finish his illustrious uh, career, they would rent him out. Uh, they would rent Page out. They would they would be partners in the the uh, the jumping for games here and there uh, and so forth and get a cut uh, of the money because Sancho Page was such a name recognition uh, that he helped teams other teams make the payroll. Uh, you know, you might be playing a, a game, two teams playing, and you're going to have maybe two thousand people there. Okay, but if Sancho Page is there, you may have twenty thousand. That was a heck of a difference. Uh, his name recognition did that. He was the biggest draw by far in Negro League uh, baseball, and as he was moving to the majors, he became the next best thing since Babe Ruth uh, in packing him in the stadium. So he jumped around from team to team in, in the Negro Leagues, but then he also played, uh, in 1930, he played in Cuba, and later in his career he plays in the Dominican Republic and in Mexico, uh, Venezuela. Can you talk about that, of African-American players moving into the Caribbean, into Mexico, South America, as, as part of their uh, where they were jumping to? Yeah, in fact, I mean, early on, even in the, in the teens, uh, 1919, etc., Ruth Foster, some of the others, uh, were, were playing games. Uh, in Latin America, in the in, in the Caribbean, so it was always a welcoming uh, environment. Uh, and Page, like others, would start playing. He started playing there in the in the twenties, and would continue it on uh, through his uh, career. They loved playing in Cuba, in Venezuela, in Mexico, uh, because first of all, it, it was it was great baseball. Uh, and you know Cuba was never a pushover. I mean, so you go down there, you're gonna have to seriously play some, some baseball. Uh, you, you know, the, the Latin countries are very good at this, this, this game. Mexico, come on, you're gonna have to play some serious uh, uh, baseball. But what what is common among all the Negro League players? And I interviewed, goodness, I forget how many, at least sixty something uh, of them. Uh, and all of the better ones who played down there, they, they said one thing in common, how well you were treated. You were treated like a man. You were treated like a, an equal. We stayed at good hotels. Um, you know, we had room service. We ate at restaurants, etc. It was none of this Jim Crow stuff that experienced uh, in the United States. So the irony uh, was, uh, and you'd hear this constantly from the players, is that I wish we were treated in our own country the way we're treated in Cuba and Mexico and Venezuela and, and so forth and so on, Puerto Rico, uh, etc. So in, in 1932-1934, uh, Page settles for a time uh, with Pittsburgh Crawfords, one of the, the most famous franchises sure. of the Negro Leagues. But then in 1935, he heads off, and, and I admit, this is one of the stranger episodes in the, in the biography. <laughs> I had difficulty with this. He heads off to North Dakota. So yeah. can you talk about uh, what he was doing there and really why that's significant, looking at the history of baseball? Oh, it's, it's very significant. I mean, Page had played out west, particularly in the so-called California uh, leagues, or many people would refer to it as the Winter League out out, out west, and you could play with different uh, different teams beyond um, uh, California. Uh, they knew of him in 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 uh, North Dakota, uh, and uh, Mr. Churchill, who who uh, owned the the Bismarck team, he was desperate to have the uh, the very best baseball team uh in in north dakota uh and and uh, so is this is this minor leagues or is this semi-pro what is this then this is semi-pro okay okay right and they will later play in the uh, uh what's called the post uh championship uh, run by the denver post a uh, newspaper etc it's basically uh semi-pro and negro league teams can compete in it uh, etc uh, and so forth. And they would be some teams uh, comprised of a number of uh, major league whites who, who are, you know, uh, uh, 
you know, uh, playing in that uh, uh, as well, because there was money to be had. You could win the Denver Post thing and win like five thousand dollars, which was serious money uh, in the in the nineteen thirties. But he ends up um, again jumping from the Crawfords, particularly in thirty uh, five. He'd done it in thirty four too, but particularly in thirty five uh, to go and play for for Churchill and um, uh, and his group out there, frankly, because of the money. I mean, he was offering pay something like a thousand bucks, uh, you know, for, for these, uh, this, this, these three major games. That was a lot of money uh, in that period of, of, of time. Uh, and, in fact, as they're moving into the championship for the Denver Post semi-pro championship back in, in, in 35, Page goes, he takes a double-duty Radcliffe uh, with him. Radcliffe is on that uh, uh, that team and, and some other players uh, as, as well. And it's a completely integrated team, you know, with six blacks and six whites uh, on this team. I mean, it's absolutely, and, and they're, they're, this is really a story of the first integrated uh, baseball team. I mean, you, you can talk integration when a, uh, a black barnstorming team plays an all-star white a barnstorming team, but that's not an integrated team. That's a contest of blacks and whites playing against each other in a baseball game. But this was an actual integrated team. So much integrated, there were times when they stopped at hotels that didn't have enough room, and they shared rooms. And you have actually blacks and whites bunking together in the same room. That's absolutely a first, and I was glad to record it. Uh, in the book. And I like the attitude of the Bismarck uh, team. When they met discrimination, like a restaurant that said, no, we don't serve Negroes here, the whole team left. The whole team would not eat there. Uh, and so, as they said, they, we walked as a team, we played as a team, we stayed as a team. Uh, and they won <laughs> uh, as a team. And it was not just because of Page, but it's interesting. Both Satchel Page and, and his good buddy, uh, Double Duty Radcliffe both said, I asked, what, what was the, the greatest, what was the highlight of the best team you ever played with? Now, you would think Paige might say the Crawfords or the Kansas City Monarchs or, you know, my great thrill in the East-West All-Star game. The Cleveland oh. Indians that won the World right, Series. Right, right, exactly. No. The Bismarck team. <laughs> they both said the same thing. The Bismarck. Uh, team, but it was so extraordinary, and, and uh, you know that they were teammates with whites, uh, and and everybody hustled and played uh, uh, their best, and it was one of the great experiences in their life. What's also happening there is they're striking really some of the first blows for integration. I mean, they're doing it, demonstrating it. Uh, as a team, uh, by in symbol, uh, they show up as, a, as, a, as an integrated team. Their success uh, uh, demonstrates it uh, uh, as well. And and then when you you're able to talk to some of the players who were on on that 35 uh, team, I quote uh, uh, several of them who said, you know, it was just uh, just such a pleasure, and how they would sit around in one of the rooms. <laughs> at night and play poker and and, and uh, double duty Radcliffe said that he won all the money well <laughs> but 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 they'd sit around and they joke and they talk uh, and they talk about the uh, various things with Paige of course you know center stage telling all these stories and all these lies uh, etc and they just got along as as a team that you would later see in so many uh, other teams but they're really groundbreakers uh, in that, and I think Page understood that, and certainly years later, and Double Duty did uh, as well. So, no, it's not the Cleveland uh, Indian experience. That would be, as you would say, a great experience. No, uh, it was the th- 1935 Bismarck team. Now, you did mention too these uh, these games between black all star teams and white all star teams, and uh, can you talk about that? With because uh, Page does this really throughout his career. When does he when does he start doing that? And what is what's the importance of these uh, barnstorming or exhibition games he was playing? Yeah, right. He starts doing that when he goes out uh, and plays in the uh, California uh, Winter League in the in the nineteen thirties, um, uh, and you know, and his name reputation is just just 
skyrocketing. It's ironic. You talk about the Depression years of the 30s. That's when Page's reputation soars to some of his highest uh, during the Depression years uh, and for many of the black ball players because theirs, their game becomes sort of the game uh, of high quality, et cetera, uh, and so forth. They typically outdrew the white majors. Uh, at, at any rate, you, what drew people in would be the the uh, two all-star teams that the two uh, developers, one black, one white, uh, came up with this notion of uh, of pitting uh, Negro League all-stars against white major all-stars out there in the California uh, uh, winter league. Tom Watson was one, and and and, 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 and forget the the name of the other guy uh, that they would pit these groups against. Uh, uh, one another. And remember, white major leaguers were easy, eager to do this, too, because they're not well paid either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? they, want, they want the extra money, uh, etc. And this idea, I mean, just really took off. They're, they're packing them in, 15, 20,000 a game, sometimes 30, uh, you know, uh, etc. In fact, uh, Landis, the, the commissioner of baseball at the time, gets upset about this because they, they will actually, they're doing better in a sense out there playing in these winter leagues and back with the with the majors. Plus, his argument was that, that uh, the major league plays, that players had everything to lose and the black ball players had everything to gain. Uh, and to a sense, that was, that was true because the, the black players, to a man, told me the same thing, that when they had the opportunity to play white major league players, they played their finest game because here was an opportunity to make a statement that I, too, could be playing in the major leagues if it wasn't for the color line. I'm just as good, if not better than you. Uh, and it's in that environment that, that no one in their right mind could question Satchel Page's abilities or that he should have been uh, in the majors. When you could go up constantly against the best pitchers of the major leagues, and I'll pitch them, including the great Dizzy Dean, including the great Bob Feller. I had, of course, the opportunity to interview Bob Feller. That's the story in itself. <laughs> but, but, but you had these uh, opportunities, and, and you, you, you show what you can do. I mean, the, the, the statements by, by uh, uh, the great Joe DiMaggio, which he made several times, saying that the, the toughest pitcher he ever faced was Satchel Page, and that he knew he was ready for the majors when he finally got a hit. Off of Satchel Page, or the statements by Dizzy Dean uh, uh, on his radio program when uh, they were asking him about the other greatest pitchers he'd ever uh, met, and without hesitation, he said the greatest pitcher I ever met by far was Satchel Page. And he said, "Oh, really?" He said, "Yeah." He said, "I was known for my fastball, but my fastball looked like a change of pace up against that bullet that 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 Satchel." Through in there, and, and Dizzy Dean went on to say, "It's a shame, you know, that we both weren't on the same team in St. Louis. That you know, the same, he said, if we were on the same team, both of us pitching, we would have had the pennant sewn up by by spring, and he said, and gone fishing into a World Series time. I mean, that was right. Uh, and there's no question uh, uh, about his greatness as a pitcher by major leaguers." Uh, who faced him in the in in the winter leagues? So those those winter league games were very important, and the black press particularly would use this in making its statements over and over again about the unfairness of, of the color line uh, and how major league baseball is suffering. And when they see a weak team not doing well, they say, "Well, how would your team be doing if you had Satchel Paige pitching?" Uh, if you had double duty Radcliffe on your team, if you had Josh Gibson catching and, and batting, uh, et cetera, and Chet Brewer, and they'd go on and on, Judy Johnson, so forth and, uh, and, and so on. This is just great talent proving itself. So those winter games are, are very important uh, because they are contests, uh, you know, where blacks can play against whites, and people can witness uh, the unfairness of the color line. So following up on the praise that that white baseball players had for Satchel Paige, uh, there were there were critics of Satchel Paige, and interestingly, sure. it was the the owners of Negro League teams who were his critics. So could you talk about that? Yeah, well, you know, Satchel Paige was his own person 
uh, and what I point out in the book, uh, he by no means was was perfect. Uh, and and Page was a very hard nosed business person. He was not a good investor. He didn't save well. He didn't invest his money uh, wisely or anything like like that. But boy, he was a hard negotiator. And, and his rule was, you you have to pay me what I'm worth. Or I'm not doing it. <laughs> and that was that was very clear. And and. Uh, he saw the stranglehold that the Negro League owners, in a very real sense, they were no different than white major league owners in terms of, we know back in that era, the baseball players were not being paid what they deserve. I mean, they'd be the exceptions, of course, Babe Ruth or somebody. Uh, but in the main, they were not making the, the kind of money they're making uh, these days. And, of course, that was the same in the Negro Leagues. Page, though, understood his value. He understood if I play in a game and you put out there on the billboard and the rest uh, and all the flyers, Satchel Page pitching, uh, that you're going to double, quadruple uh, those people buying uh, tickets. He said that means that I should be making more money. And he was by far the highest paid player in the in the uh, Negro Leagues. And he had an attitude to go along with it. Think about it. No owner wants some player who's so uppity that tells you, uh, I won't play unless you pay me more. <laughs> right? If you don't pay me more, okay, fine, I'll jump to another team. Meanwhile, good luck in getting people to, to fill your stands. And so Paige, in that regard, was always, uh, there was an uneasy balance with him and the, uh, the Negro League uh, owners uh, because of that and because of the fact that he would jump on you, just like he did um, uh, Gus Greenlee in the, Cor- in the Crawfords to go to, to the 35 Bismarck team. I mean, the Crawfords, Gus Green- they had just signed the contract. <laughs> they had just signed the contract. Uh, and, you know, in short order, here goes Paige jumping because I can make more money uh, there. And then as he would go off, of course, to Latin America and that stint uh, with, with, uh, in Trujillo and the, the Dominican Republic in 37 and, uh, and so forth and take so many of the great all-stars uh, with him. I mean, there are bands uh, against Page, uh, you know, by Negro League owners, but these bands never held. Uh, and they wouldn't hold because he was such a draw. Mm-hmm. He, that, that was the, the bottom line. And J.L. Wilkinson, uh, one of the few white owners in the Negro Leagues, and who would have, in fact, the most successful uh, team in the Negro Leagues in terms of making money, uh, etc. Uh, he understood this, and he took Page in when Page had had all the arm troubles uh, later on um, in the late 30s, uh, and he took Page in because he knew with his his high name recognition, he could still bring people to the ballpark, even if he just did some shadow ball and through some bloopers, uh, and he invested in that. And in the end, his investment paid off because Page's arm healed, mm-hmm. uh, and then he was able to play uh, full-time regular ball and, and was, was back to his great self uh, again. And you had many owners furious with, with Wilkinson uh, uh, about that. But the other reality was, in the end, most of them would have to concur that the that, uh, Satchel Page was the Negro Leagues. I mean, you, you know, it's like Muhammad Ali in boxing in the heyday. You could say what the heck you wanted to say, but we all make more money uh, if if Ali's fighting. We all make more money, uh, as they said in, in pro basketball during the Michael Jordan era. Uh, and you, people were asking, don't other teams just hate the notoriety of Michael Jordan? And they said, no. Uh, not when you're scheduled against the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan, because attendance goes way up. We all benefit from it. That was the case with, with Satchel Paige. Uh, and you found very few players who talked poorly uh, about Paige because of that factor. Also because with other players, he never showed this, uh, you know, I'm better than you, uh, to the contrary. And that was just not in his persona. But for owners... Um, owners had problems with him. He was arrogant in that regard. He knew what he was worth, and he demanded that you pay him uh, what he was worth, or he'd go pitch for somebody else. And owners traditionally have not liked those kinds of uh, ball players or sportsmen, no matter what the sport. 
So I'll ask, we're almost out of time, Don. I'll ask a, a, a couple of questions to assess Satchel Page. And first of all, is that Satchel Page is a baseball player. So so where where would you put him? You've, you've looked at the accounts of many of his games. Uh, I don't know if you kept track of the statistics, but, you know, looking at the list of the all-time, uh, the all-time great pitchers. Where would you put him on that list? As the greatest pitcher that ever lived, without hesitation. Without he- hesitation. Remember, I'm in my 60s, so I saw the great mm-hmm. Sandy Koufax. I saw I saw Bob Gibson. All these great, fabulous pitchers. Uh, many of them I admired. Uh, you know, I interviewed the great Bob Feller. Uh, right, I never saw him pitch, but I've seen tapes of him pitching. Wow, you know, and, and of course the uh, uh, the great uh, Dizzy Dean, uh, and so forth and so on. Without hesitation, Satchel Page. Look, Bill Zeck, I think, put it best. He said, "If Satchel Page come into the majors when he was in his prime, today's Cy Young Award would be known as the Satchel Page Award." Well, then I'll ask, going back to the, the phone call you got from John Hope Franklin, why, why is this great baseball pitcher deserving of an academic biography? What is the significance of Satchel Page beyond his ability to, to throw baseball? What I think is so significant about Page is that his life uh, uh, travels through much of the African-American experience from his lifetime, 1906 to 1982. I mean, uh, from the Jim Crow era uh, through the, the, uh, the Great Depression, through World War II, right, as I call that chapter, the Double V, which he and other blacks and others hope for, victory over there and victory at home against racism and discrimination. Except he travels through the, the 50s. Right, the McCarthy, McCarthy era, etc. The, the problems with the FBI, and uh, so he travels through the civil rights era, right? And, and much of his philosophy seemed to match up better with with black power than it did the the nonviolent direct action of, of Martin Luther King Jr. He lives through this whole thing. I mean, there are lynchings in the South, and one of the things I was so proud to to document. Uh, was that these black ball players contributed to anti-lynching campaigns. I don't know if others in, in looking at this just not aware or not concerned. This is very important. Uh, his good friend, who was best man at his wedding, was the famous Bill Bojangles Robinson, one of the greatest dancers of all time. But many forget that Bill Bojangles Robinson was committed to helping black youngsters troubled youngsters like the past he had had, like the past Satchel Page had had, and so many others. Uh, and they contributed money. Uh, they contributed uh, talks and lectures uh, and, and so forth. Those things are usually forgotten, and people just want to talk about, you know, Page and Negro League ball players and talk about the sexual escapades, funny stories. And you have that in my book. I mean, you get some of that. But it's much more important, I think, as a historian to talk about the historical uh, context. And as I say with, with Satchel Page, this is the story of the man who, with really a little less than a more than a fourth grade education, who helped strike out Jim Crow. So, Don, you were working on this biography for 12 years. What, do, what yep. are you working on now? What's the new project? Uh, I'm finishing up a project that I began many <laughs> years ago, <laughs> right, and finally finishing it, uh, it up. It's on the Bates Must Play. Uh, movement uh, at New York University that started in 1939 and ended uh, uh, right after, right at the beginning of uh, America's entry into World War II. About Leonard Bates, who was a black football player, uh, who was a victim of the Gentlemen's Agreement, uh, was not allowed to play with his team, uh, the the New York Violets, uh, when they played uh, against uh, white teams, uh, who invoked the Gentlemen's Agreement back then that you leave your black player. At home, and so that one I'm finishing up, and that one um, uh, it was it's such a story, ongoing story of the Bates Seven, uh, the the students there who led the protest to, to change all of this, and, and and to my great privilege, I got to interview all of them, who <laughs> they were still alive as I was uh, starting this and doing this, and Evelyn Whitkin, one of the leaders, is still around. Uh, she won, by the way, a couple years ago the Medal of Freedom. 
for, for science uh, awarded uh, to her. She's just a great intellect. She was one of the Bates, uh, Bates Seven. Uh, and, and too, as part of that project, we were able to get uh, New York University, which had back in the, the 40s, uh, uh, suspended all these students. Uh, we got New York University uh, in 2000 to apologize uh, for that. Not only that, but to recognize these students as having been at the forefront uh, of the civil rights movement. And that, by the way, made the front page of the New York Times. So we were very proud of that. And do you still you still hate Satchel Page? <laughs> It's a love-hate relationship. It's more love now since I'm finished, right? You know how it is. You can look back and you can say, okay, it's not at that moment when you're finally finishing up. I mean, there would be times I'm fixing to write a chapter on this guy, and I said, you know, heck, I don't know enough about Kansas City, Missouri. And then I look over there and say, my God, I got 18 books I got to read on Kansas City, Missouri, before I can actually write. It's probably going to be a small chapter. I got to, oh, shoot. So, I mean, you know, you, you say that, but at the same time, you 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 know, you, you really appreciate it because he helped fill out my education, yeah. right? And that's, you know, that, being a university professor is a great, great privilege because the irony is when you put a book out there like Satchel Page, which was, was originally almost a thousand pages, and when you trim it down and work with copy editors and so forth, you put out there, you put out only a fraction mm-hmm. of what you learned. Uh, and that's the good, what I mean by the great privilege, just like you show up to teach a class and you, you, you tell them a little bit about what, what you know. Uh, on this subject, and you're actually paid and have the privilege of improving your mind, right, and doing what would be my hobby, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, which is my, my profession, but improving your mind, doing research, writing about it, and teaching about it. That's a great honor. You've been listening to an interview with Don Spivey about his book, If You Were Only White, The Life of Leroy Satchel Page, published by the University of Missouri Press in 2012. New Books in Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from science fiction to philosophy. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books in Sports on Twitter or friend us on Facebook. You can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening, and enjoy your week.